left weekly radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Alrighty, welcome. You are listening once again to Green Left Radio on Melbourne's most rad radio station 3CR. And this morning we have got uh, in the studio with us uh, Jacob and also uh, TV's councillor Sue Bolton. Welcome, Sue. Hi, how's it going? Very good. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Okay, well, before we get started on um, announcing what we have coming up for the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty has never been ceded. Now, I guess to get into um, some of what we have coming up, I guess I wanted to sort of start a bit of, I guess, a discussion around some of the kind of headline sort of news stories um, that is kind of like, um, that have kind of appeared in the headlines in the past day. The first kind of story I sort of want to um, talk about actually is, um, this is quite a good, um, a, a big sort of, a good sort of union win, although not completely a union win yet because they haven't won it yet. But um, within the nurses' union um, in WA, um, there was a mass meeting where, thanks to the kind of like the intervention of a number of um, socialist activists who are members of the union, um, they managed to um, basically win. Um, they basically managed to get the the membership to agree that in terms of the next enterprising bargaining agreement, in terms of um, a wage rise, that they would fight for a 10% wage increase. Which I, th- which is actually very significant, um, in the context of, you know, high inflation rate. A lot of, um, trade unions have been actually not necessarily been negotiating those kind of, um, wage increases because mm. essentially with, when you take into account inflation, 10% is actually the most reasonable kind of wage rise you mm. could conceivably get. Um, whereas if you're going for like, a two to three percent sort of pay increase, or even five percent. It would essentially be a wage cut in yeah. the context of um, in the context of inflation. Mm. And probably what is probably the most interesting thing about the story is um, Mark McGowan, um, the premier in Western Australia, has already ruled out that he will not even be talking to uh, the nurses' union um, about about this, about, um, uh, not, won't even negotiate around this pay rise and said, no, this is not, this, we're not, we can't give this. And well, but I guess the good thing is, um, the nurses union, um, the nurses union in WA are preparing to go on strike over this, uh, to basically, it's hopefully force, um, the government, um, to come to the table around this deal. Hmm. Um, there's been some media reporting, uh, 
just a few weeks ago that the Western Australian government has posted a $6 billion surplus for this financial year just gone 2021-22. So that gives additional contrast or, or context to uh, Mark McGowan coming out and straight up saying we're not going to talk to the union, we're not going to give this pay rise. The West Australian government is swimming in cash and they won't give nurses a a pay rise that yeah keeps up with inflation and has a small um, real pay gain on top of that. It's disgusting. And on top of that, a lot of um, rents are increasing by something like 10% mm. around the country. So this is a well-justified pay rise, mm. especially given the, the fact that you consider that the CPI doesn't include all increases in prices. It doesn't include housing, doesn't include a whole lot of things. So probably the real rate of inflation is actually higher than the six or so percent it is now. Hmm. And probably another, I guess, another context for, um, you know, for, for what the kind of nurses are fighting for in terms of this wage increase is, this wage increase isn't just about getting a better um, isn't just about getting a better deal for um, for the um, nurses who are currently working. One of the kind of arguments that they're also kind of making is in terms of Western Australia's kind of healthcare system, which is you know not it's um, it was prior to the um, to the borders opening up. There was actually this huge kind of debate, um, political debate, which is a bit long past now, but it did um, it was uh, it did relate to the fact that the Western Australia uh, healthcare system is chronically, uh, you know, underfunded. It is quite dysfunctional. And in fact, even prior to COVID, um, although, um, even prior to COVID, it was actually struggling to fulfill, um, triple zero requests. So mm. it's sort of like one of the other contexts for fighting for this 10% wage increase is actually about actually trying to attract new staff, uh, to f- mm. uh, fill an industry because basically healthcare has been one of the main industries mm. where there's been severe staffing shortages, which is like, and it's, and it's an ascent, what obviously one of the most essential services you, that you need staff for, mm. especially in terms of enforcing, um, 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 patient to um, nurse to um, to patient ratios, etc. And of course, another thing as well that they're they're also demanding uh, midwife to patient ratios, which counts um, babies as part of the equation, which is something that's currently not currently done in WA. So yeah, a lot of the um, these there's, there's more that that the nurses union are demanding beyond a ten percent wage increase. And I think you know we all power to the um, to the nurses. Um, I hope they can get absolutely get this deal. Um, and then they can get the go- um, the McGowan government to agree. Mm. And I think it's it sets a really good precedent too, because other other workers will look at that example and will you know will will think about doing the same and following suit and having a you know pushing for pay rises that are more in that ballpark of ten percent, which is what's needed to to get pay rises that are above inflation. And there's this argument going around particularly at the start of the RBA's interest rate increases, that workers should not push for pay rises because that's going to start a a wage push um, inflation cycle. And it was kind of like the RBA was trying to argue that the current inflation is caused by workers, you know, just getting too much pay rises, which is just garbage. 
pay rises have been, you know, have not been keeping up with uh, inflation for for a while. Wages have been really stagnant. Even if that was to happen, even if workers in all industries started winning 10% pay rises, which a lot would need to happen for us to get to that stage, even if that happened, and even if there was a modest bump to inflation as a result of all these workers suddenly getting a 10% pay rise, having more money, wage bills goes up, people have a bit more money, you're still, those workers are still better off if they win their 10% pay rise and it causes a sort of a a, a flow-on, moderate, you know, little increase to inflation, workers are still better off than doing what the RBA would suggest and just sit there and cop it on the chin and not push for anything that's vaguely in the ballpark of, of keeping up with inflation, let alone getting ahead of it. So, yeah, it's good to see those workers vote that proposal up and... Uh, disgraceful that the union leadership would come out straight away immediately after their own members have voted for this and try and talk it down and backpedal it yeah well because i think ultimately if the members uh voted for it uh regardless if you're let's say you're a union secretary regardless if you disagreed with uh, that point of call it's actually your job it is literally their job to implement and (laughs) advocate for the decision that Mm. has been made by the union (laughs) yeah no, absolutely. And I think it's, um, you know, it's scandalous if, if the union secretary is saying that they're not going to campaign for the, this pay rise, um, just because the union leadership may have been aiming lower. Um, I, th- I think 10% pay rise is absolutely reasonable, as we've been saying in the conversation, um, this morning. It's absolutely reasonable, and I think it would set a certain benchmark if they actually do win this pay rise. I think that and that's really necessary. Um, there's a need to attract healthcare workers back into the system. Um, people who've given up because of the huge amounts of work um, and understaffing during COVID and also in this current period. Um, so this is really necessary because... You know, shift work takes a toll on people's bodies, and most of these these nurses would be shift workers. There'd be very few that are not shift workers, which means they're working all sorts of antisocial hours, and you need to be compensated for doing that to your body. Yeah, and um, I just want to bring up a quick news story before we get on to our first interview of the program, where we're going to be interviewing Ange Carr. Another kind of um, ongoing union dispute that has been happening is within New South Wales, um, which is between the rail union and uh, the New South Wales government. And now, one, this is quite a positive announcement that happened yesterday, and I'm, I'm hoping they go ahead with it because they had previously announced this, but, um, they, ha- um, but, um, the union, basically, to give a bit of background, uh, the Rail Union is actually basically planning on switching off Opal card readers as part of its um, in- ongoing industrial dispute with the New South Wales government over paying conditions. And now, for those who might not be aware what Opal is, um, Opal is basically what Mikey is in, uh, New South Wales. So, it would be this would be adjacent to 
the um, the rail union, um, the rail unions shutting off uh, Mikey readers, etc. Now, the date for the shutdown has not been determined, and the government has yet to be notified. But last month, there was an intention by the rail, tram, and bus union to switch off the readers to give commuters free travel. But they cancelled their plans at the last minute because of legal threats from the government. Um, but now, I guess the good thing is they're now pushing again um, to escalate this kind of level, um, to escalate the industrial action. And of course, the RTBU held a ballot over this action, and of course, 90% of the members had voted supporting the reviving the action to switch off the readers. And you know, the the union secretary said this. Had, Alex uh, Klassen said this has sent a very strong message to the New South Wales government that RTBU members are prepared to fight for their right to take action and the enterprise agreement they deserve. A letter to union members authorised by union secretary Alex Klassen said, and also possibly I think. Yeah, I think this is, um, this is, I think this is very positive and the union has been, the RTBU in New South Wales has been doing a lot of different waves of industrial action and in fact, um, they're going to be meeting to actually decide when the next round of action will go ahead, uh, beyond turning off the opal card readers. Um, now probably one of the interesting things I've, one of the sort of things to end this, um, discussion on is, um, I thought it was kind of funny that, um, um, the transport minister, um, mate, yeah, he basically said, um, David Elliott, he basically said something along the lines of, um, you know, the Opal card readers are taxpayer assets and the union interfering with wiring and switches to turn them off is both unsafe and ridiculous. And I'm trying to sort of figure out what does a ticket management system that make um, have anything to do with safety in terms of public transport because you don't actually need Mikey cards or Opal cards to actually have... Um, they have nothing to do with the with the functioning of, of public transport. So they're actually, in a sense, a privatised... It's just an example of a privatised system that just makes profit off us. Well, the lunacy of this is that the... Railway workers actually one of the reasons for the industrial action is an issue of safety over the trains that have been introduced. I think between Newcastle and Sydney, so there's actually a serious safety issue. That's why the railway workers are fighting so hard against the New South Wales government. So turning off operators is not a safety issue. But the actual forcing of workers to drive unsafe trains is mm. a serious safety issue. Yeah, they want to save on wages by having trains without guards. Yeah. And there was a serious incident at, I think, airport train station in Sydney where a train door shut and someone got caught in the doors and was going to get dragged by the train. And this was a, the, the guard was able to jump in and, and help this person. But if this had been one of these whiz-bang new guardless trains that saves money, there would have been no one there to help this person, and they would have got mashed. So it was a it was a good demonstration mm. of what they're talking about. Well, actually, similar situations happened in Melbourne when they took guards off the trains here. That was under Kennett years and years ago in the 90s. Mm. And there were situations where people and babies in prams got caught in doors and were dragged along platforms. Hmm. Um, and, it, you know, some of the platforms are curved, so the yeah. driver can't see driver the full length, yeah. full length of the... Yeah, so there are all sorts of issues with having guardless trains. Hmm. And there are probably issues that still happen in Melbourne today, but we don't hear about them anymore. Hmm. 
All right, we are going to go to a quick announcement, and then we're going to be talking to Angela Carr from Geelong Housing Action. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. Alrighty, welcome back. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, and on the phone this morning, we have got Angela Carr, who is from Geelong Housing Action, and yeah, Ange is a community service worker, a union delegate, and mother of three, and is, yeah, going to talk to us about the housing crisis, which is pretty serious in Geelong, working class area, as it is in much of the rest of the country. Welcome, Ange. Hi, good morning, and thanks for having me on, and good morning to the listeners. Yeah, so good morning, Angela. And um, what can, I guess um, maybe to kind of start off, I guess, this kind of discussion, can you give us a bit of an overview of the housing crisis, both in terms of the demand for, you know, for housing amongst um, renters, but also the, the general kind of issue of homelessness? Yeah, so that's a really big question, so I'll try and cover a, key, um, a couple of key points. And I suppose we've always had a layer of people that are more vulnerable to housing insecurity and homelessness due to economic and social reasons. So, of course, we know that First Nations people experience much higher rates of homelessness, um, and that's because of the impacts of colonisation and genocide and racism and discrimination. We know that women um, are less financially stable due to gender inequality and of course family violence is a key reason for women and children to become homeless. Young people, um, people with mental health issues or disability, cold families, LGBTI communities, they're people that traditionally um, struggle within a private housing market. But now we're actually seeing a broader layer of low to middle income families finding themselves experiencing homelessness. Um, And my observation, I used to work in the housing homelessness sector. You know, this really started to escalate a couple of years prior to COVID, but COVID then really accelerated, um, you know, people's experience of homelessness, especially in the regions such as where I live in Geelong, because we had a lot of people that were working from home and tree changes moving into regional areas. So... In the last two years, um, rents in Geelong have risen by 25%. You know, it's quite extraordinary. And 
I think the average across Australia is vacancy rates are around 1%, but in Geelong, the vacancy rates for private rentals are only 0.4%. So um, there's a housing shortage, but also an affordability crisis. Um, Obviously, the general cost of living pressures and stagnant wages have also had a huge impact on people being able to maintain housing. But we also need to remember that the price of housing itself has become so inflated over the last sort of 15 to 20 years that there's not a lot of hope for people. And probably the last point I'll just touch on um, is income support payments. So they are a major barrier for people. Um, and there's no affordable private rentals for people on income support. And we've seen the federal government, they're just showing how callous and cruel they are for not incre- increasing um, income support payments above the poverty line. And the housing and homelessness services, they're really on their knees. So funding for homelessness services has gone backwards in real terms. But this is at a time when we've never seen more people presenting for um, housing support. So... Yeah, there are a few of the key points. Yeah, and I guess going into the kind of next question, Angela, I mean, what do you kind of think, what is your sort of analysis on some of the kind of root causes of some of these issues in terms of kind of like the political decisions that our major parties have, that have been making into while they've been in, in government? Yeah, so the housing crisis is really a crisis of capitalism. So the constant drive for profit at all costs has taken away working-class people's most basic of human rights, so to have a roof over their head. And we've seen, you know, the major parties embrace the neoliberalism since the 80s. It's led to this property boom. In Victoria, we have the lowest rates of public housing in the country, so public housing stock makes up just under 4% of all housing stock. And across the world, it's quite different. Like a lot of European countries, they have up to 17 to 20% of their housing is actually um, public housing stock. So we're also seeing um, massive issues with privatisation. So under the guise of increasing social housing, they're privatising housing. Um, and we know that when services become privatised, this is going to be a disaster for communities' needs. So public housing offers low-cost and secure tenancies for vulnerable people. Um, and if the privatisation over to the community housing providers continues, it's going to lead to larger presentations of people experiencing homelessness. And what we've seen, and I used to see this at work, that community housing providers, they do not house the most vulnerable people um, with complex issues. So they cherry-pick their tenants and they're quite quick to take people to VCAT um, and issue eviction notices on rental arrears and things like that. And they're also not regulated properly, so they make up their own rules and rental calculations. Some of the other broader things are policies such as capital gains tax and negative gearing. So they continue to assist the elite to grow their own individual wealth, but they push up the property prices. And this increases the cost of rent So and makes private rental completely unaffordable for average working class people. Um, we did see in the last census that there's one million vacant properties across Australia. So... You know, it blows the mind that greedy landlords are sitting on assets while people have nowhere to live. So property speculation, um, it's a real issue and it's quite disgusting. Um, some of the other schemes the government come up with, like the first home buyer schemes, 
economists have clearly stated that these types of schemes continue to push up the cost of housing as people with money um, use the additional money in the bidding wars. So, look, I'd probably just say in a rich country like Australia, it continues to be a political choice to keep people homeless and living in poverty. Mm. And I guess, what are your, some of your comments, I guess, on some of the other market-driven aspects of the, the housing market? Like, I guess, what are your sort of comments on, you know, the what has been, you know, the impact on the housing market with the introduction of, you know, Airbnb, which has obviously become a much bigger thing in recent years? And, of course, most governments don't even really have policy uh, in terms of regulating um, Airbnbs. Well, across our region, what we have seen and all other regional towns would know that Airbnbs are actually an absolute disaster. Um, So they're taking family homes out of the private rental market. And we know that most of these properties actually sit vacant for a good nine plus months of the year. So especially hard hit are the tourist regional areas. So down on the surf coast, like around Torquay, not far from Geelong, um, in the latest census, they showed that there were nearly 2,000 empty properties. And so it's very disgusting when we have so many families in our region um, sleeping in cars on people's couches and in tents. So I'm, we know that market-driven schemes um, do not help people in need. They're all about making profit. So I've actually reached a point now that I believe that Airbnbs need to be completely banned. Um, It's the ultimate capitalist idea. So the greedy landlords are hoarding properties. They're charging exuberant amounts of money. And the ultimate goal is making profits. But we need to, um, yeah, we need to be moving away from that. People need to be able to have a roof over their heads. And I guess going into what do you think are some of the solutions that are needed to address the housing crisis? Yeah, so look, there's lots of things that can be done if there's a political will to do them. Um, So, I mean, the the obvious thing is we need a large-scale public housing building program. So in Victoria, we probably need around 100,000 good quality, eco-friendly houses to be built over the next few years Um, and of course this in turn creates jobs for people as well. Um, Rents have skyrocketed to uncontrollable levels so we need an immediate freeze on rent increases um, and we need to strengthen tenants and renters um, conditions and I would say the privatisation of converting public housing into social housing um, So handing over public housing to the community housing providers, this needs to be ceased immediately and community housing homes need to be handed back to the state to manage. Um, Look, there's so many things that could be done. We could be... Developers need to be forced to allocate um, a percentage of their properties into public housing. Um, And you could be... We could create state-owned bodies to provide low-interest loans to people. Um, And one of the other things that I think is really important as an interim measure is just expanding emergency accommodation. At the moment, there is really um, people presenting as homeless. Um, There's nowhere for them to go. Um, So that that program needs to be expanded. But 
when when people have complex issues, you know, sustaining tenancy can be difficult. So we need to adopt um, a housing first model like they have in Finland. So not there's a housing first community housing provider in Melbourne. That's not what I'm talking about. That's where people sometimes get confused. But in Finland, they just provide people that are presenting as homeless um, secure, stable, long-term accommodation and they provide long-term wraparound support. So, you know, case management support or medical care, um, you know, drug and alcohol workers, doctors, mental health workers. Um, you know, we need to move to that type of model in Australia. Yeah, it's just um, just on that question of emergency housing and public housing, uh, I'd, I worked at a place that, that did some work on the um, the quarantine project at Mickleham, which is oh, yeah. sitting there unused. I, I, people are calling it a white elephant. I think there's an argument that says that it, it makes sense to actually have a quarantine facility so when the next pandemic comes along, there's a actually ready-built um, facility that's good to go. But the, the speed with which that thing was built, it was about six months to get a thousand bed facility built and if the political will was there uh, you could build emergency housing in in Melbourne and in major major regional centres like Geelong quite quickly. I think um, this idea that, I don't know, there seems to be this idea that's too hard and we could never do it but I think if the political will was there you could actually build a lot of emergency housing and an initial batch of public housing quite quickly. Yes, I completely agree and I think that's why um, we know that we know governments don't make major reforms without people really advocating and you know creating mass movements around um, campaigning for these issues. So I think that's why it's important. We we are seeing um, housing justice activists rising up across the country. So I think it's an exciting time for those of us that are um, involved in these movements. And um, can you get in, um, can you tell us um, um, maybe this is just a um, this will be a final kind of question and a bit and you can um, use it as opportunity to make some concluding comments. But I guess what can you tell can you um, I'll, what can you tell us about um, the Geelong Housing kind of act, um, housing homelessness action network? And yeah, what are some of the upcoming activities that um, that you are planning? Yeah, so um, at Geelong Housing Action Group, we have been involved in running some local actions, um, some kind of um, lobbying of politicians, and we've had a rally not so long ago in August. Um, we've done a bit of um, advocacy with local councils, so we have a regular monthly meeting and, you know, we ask community members to identify possible actions and campaigns that we can get involved in. Um, in Geelong at the moment, there are some current concerns about a local um, homelessness food service closing down. So these are the types of things that we um, look at being involved in. Um, coming up, though, there's quite a few um, housing actions coming up across Geelong and Melbourne, actually. So on Wednesday the 19th... Um, in Geelong at 12.30, we're going to be at the front of the Officer House building, uh, Office of Housing Building sorry, in Little Mallet Street. Um, and we're going to ha hear from a few housing justice campaigners and we're going to have an open mic for people. 
Um, and we're also asking people, we're going to be chalking up some of our messages to government, but we're also asking people um, that may not be in Geelong and can't get to Geelong, they can also do that out the front of their local real estate agent or community housing provider and um, upload their photos and tag us on social media. And I do know that um, I might do a plug for a couple of the Melbourne groups too while I'm here. So Homes Not Prisons are having a rally at Parliament next Friday at 4pm. Um, that's the 21st. And then Rahu, the Renters and Housing Tenants Union, they're having a rally on the 22nd, the Saturday at 1pm at Parliament. And then the public housing activists in Melbourne... Um, on the 28th, they're going to be at the Minister for Housing's office at Mooney Ponds at 12.30. So it's exciting to see that there's a lot of um, campaigns popping up all over the place. And it's not just in Victoria, it's across Australia. So I'd really urge anyone that has an interest in this area to try and get involved. Right. Well, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, Angela. And um, yeah, all the um, all the best with um, your upcoming um, um, actions that you're organising with the Geelong Housing Action Network. Cheers. Have a good day, everyone. Cheers. Thanks for okay. talking with us. Thanks. See ya. All right. Bye, Ange. <laughs> Great, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM and we we're just speaking to Ange Carr about um, giving us a bit of an overview of the housing crisis and kind of what is to be done. Um, now I will go play, we'll play a quick, um, we'll play a quick few announcements. I think we've got to get, um, get into our next interview that we have, um, planned for the program, which is supposed to be scheduled at 7.35 a.m. Um, so yeah, I'll just, we'll just play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 a.m. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. Three CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Hi, everybody. We've now got um, Sitara Mohammadi on the line. 
Um, Sitara is a spokesperson for the World Hazara Council, which is an umbrella body for all Hazara people around the world. Um, she is also a former refugee from Afghanistan who spent 2019 as a provost scholar at the University of Oxford. And uh, I met Sitara and heard her speak at the massive Hazara vigil in Dandenong um, last weekend where there was something like two to 3,000 Hazara from all over Victoria gathered to protest a massacre of Hazara girls at a school. Um, so welcome, Sitara. Hello, Sitara. Hi, sorry, is the audio okay? Yeah, the audio is perfect. Thanks, Sidera. I thought we'd lost you for a minute. My my name is Sue, Sue Bolton, and in the studio we've got Zane Alcorn and uh, Jacob Andrewatha here as well. Hi, Sidera. Hi, Sidera. Hi, hello. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you online because you were a fantastic speaker and especially explaining the campaign um, of the... Um, World Hazara Council for um, the world community to recognise genocide, the genocide that's happening against Hazara in Afghanistan. But first of all, I thought I'd um, ask you for our listeners, um, some will know a lot about Afghanistan, some won't know very much. Um, there have been recent protests developing on a global scale in response to the violent attack on the Hazara school in Kabul on September 30. Can you um, give our listeners a bit of background about what sparked the global protest movement recently to stop Hazara genocide? Sure, thanks, Sue. Um, I think it's important uh, to begin with giving some context to the audience in terms of, uh, yeah, as you, as you rightly say, why we uh, called for the demonstration around the world uh, and we um, started the movement, hashtag Stop Hazar Genocide. Uh, so just, just in terms of very briefly for the audience, uh, the Hazara people are one of the largest ethnic uh, groups in Afghanistan. It's also important to bear in mind that Afghanistan is a land of minorities. So there are a lot of uh, minority groups within the country, no major uh, ethnic groups, uh, although the Hazaras are predominantly Shia Muslims, which makes them a religious minority, but not an ethnic minority. Uh, and so, <clears throat> giving some context to the audience, the systematic uh, atrocities against the Hazara people in Afghanistan is, is not new. Uh, in fact, it's been unfolding for more than a century. Uh, it started under uh, the late, uh, it, it started in the late 19th century uh, under Pashtun ruler Abdul Rahman when he uh, eliminated some 62% of the Hazara population. Uh, the sort of systematic, institutionalized uh, violence, exclusion, marginalization, and massacres continued throughout the 20th century as well. Uh, and as we saw uh, in the first, uh, during the first uh, Taliban regime of the late 1990s, when Hazaras faced at least six massacres throughout that period. And so uh, these systematic and these pattern of constant attacks against the Hazara people in Afghanistan uh, all have uh, hallmarks of the crime of genocide. And so after this latest attack, uh, although this is a, it's really important to, to, to recognize that the, that the movement that has been going on, which is the hashtag Stop Hazara Genocide and the demand to call 
for uh, the genocide of the Hazara people be stopped in Afghanistan is a people's movement. By no means is the World Hazara Council taking credit for that. It is for the people led by the people. So that's really important as well to state. Uh, and so, yeah, so after this latest attack on the 30th of October, uh, we, we, we called for those global demonstrations because it, we cannot, uh, we cannot just have another vigil and go, get on with our lives. We thought it's really important that we, we reach out to every corner of the globe. We raise awareness of what's happening in Afghanistan against the Hazaras. Uh, to demand that these atrocities be stopped and to have that formal recognition of the Hazara genocide in Afghanistan. So, Sidera, it'd be great if you could explain um, what you're calling for. Like one of the things I heard you say at the protest um, on the weekend was that you want the world to recognise that what's happening is of a genocidal nature against the Hazara. And also you was making the point that there's a lot of violence happening in Afghanistan against lots of, you know, against all Afghanis from the Taliban government. But there's an extra special level of targeted violence towards the Hazara. So I was just wondering if you could explain that a little bit. Sure. Yes, thank you. Um, as I mentioned uh, at the vigil uh, last Sunday, that it's, it's really important that we recognise that there is widespread violence and human rights atrocities uh, being perpetrated by the Taliban and other uh, terrorist organisations in Afghanistan, uh, as we've seen with women's rights uh, and girls' rights being hugely restricted. Uh, it's all horrific and it's all uh, against you know, values of human rights, of freedom, of justice. Uh, But what we're seeing with the Hazara people is that they're not just being targeted or their rights aren't just being restricted because they're women uh, or that they have no right to go to school and seek education, but in fact that these attacks that happen on a very, very constant and frequent basis, it's it's an attack on their ethnicity. So it's it's an attack that's based on their ethnic identity. Uh, I'll quickly give two very brief examples for the audience just to demonstrate my point. Last year, um, the, the Halo Trust, I, I'm not sure if the audience or um, if you've heard of the tr- Halo Trust uh, mine that was uh, undertaking projects in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so the, the attacker went into that mine, uh, uh, and so they asked who the Hazaras were in that mine who were working. So they didn't, uh, they didn't go in there asking, okay, who, who's the Afghan or who's the women or who's the man? They went in there and they merely asked one question and one question only. Who are the Hazaras in here? So, and the, the other example that I'd like to give is the, the highway, which is called the Death Road. Uh, that's the highway between Kabul, which is the capital of Afghanistan, and the provinces. Uh, there's a particular highway which is called the Death Road, where travelers who are traveling in vehicles in public transport, uh, they were identified, Hazara, uh, the perpetrators would go into these vehicles in buses and other types of vehicles. They'd go into these vehicles, ask for who the Hazaras are. They would take them out, take all the Hazaras out of these vehicles, either behead them, shoot them, murder them, and then let their bodies lay there while the rest of the travelers were told that they could move on. So that's the type of, that's the nature of the, 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 the nature of the targeted 
systematic attacks, atrocities that the Hazaras are facing, which is not just part of the general violence, but as you rightly said, it's, it's, these are just extra layers that are faced by the Hazara people merely based on their ethnic identity as a Hazara. Just a follow-on question, Sidera, from that is, is the, um, does the UN or any of the international bodies recognise um, the fact that this is a, a genocide against the Hazara? Is, that, uh, is there any movement on that issue or are, are people just treating it as just general violence? Um, at the moment, we haven't had any uh, recognition from the international bodies like the UN. Uh, unfortunately, the narrative so far has been uh, that these attacks against the Hazaras are just part of the general violence uh, happening in Afghanistan. So we haven't had that recognition, but through this movement of ours that we've, uh, we've started, uh, we're hoping that we're reaching firstly the public uh, around the world uh, just, to, just to raise awareness of what's happening in Afghanistan and then to have that targeted uh, uh, goal of reaching uh, international organizations like the UN to make sure that we do have that formal recognition at that level. Yes, because it seems very, very similar to what's been happening to the Rohingya, but the incredible violence, which is also driving the Hazara out of the, out of the country um, yeah. as well, so that, um, you know, a massive depopulation um, by the, of the Hazara. Yeah, I mean, last year when the Taliban came to power, uh, they, they started evicting, forcibly evicting Hazaras from their native land. So, and, and this evacuation, eviction process continues today, uh, where thousands of families, you know, particularly as the winter is approaching, uh, families are being uh, told that they need to leave their, their homes and their lands and, and go somewhere else. And this is very difficult because, as you know, with the context of Afghanistan, uh, the, the land and the homes that people have got is all they've got. So uh, it's a very, very um, systematic policy that, that, that they continue to, to use today. Um, now, at the protest last weekend, there was um, special thanks to um, Solidarity or, or people who attended who were from Afghanistan but not from the Hazara community. I was wondering, within Afghanistan and also even within the Australian community, um, is there solidarity from um, non-Hazara Afghans for what the Hazara are experiencing? Are you experiencing support within Afghanistan? Um, Yes. So for a long time, I think um, the support or the solidarity or the understanding uh, that the Hazaras have been facing and continue to face systematic attacks uh, was not recognized uh, by the non-Hazara population in Afghanistan. Uh, As I said, the narrative for a long time has been that this is just part of the general violence that everybody is is suffering from, everybody is a victim of in Afghanistan. Uh, But with the recent uh, attacks, uh, there was an attack last year on a girls' high school, uh, uh, Hazara Girls' High School, an attack earlier this year in April on the boys' high school. Um, So each of these attacks that have happened, uh, they have given uh, the non-Hazara population that uh, understanding that that these systematic attacks that are happening against Hazaras is actually not part of that general violence, but that these attacks are systematic and they are targeted. 
And so with the Stop Hazara Genocide Movement, uh, some non-Hazara people from Afghanistan have actually uh, started to understand and they've shown their solidarity with that movement. Uh, although it's not the entire population, but there is that, uh, that uh, small pockets of people who are, who are getting on board now, yeah. That's, that's really, really important. So that's good that that is starting to happen. I guess the next, the final question, because I think you've got to go very soon, um, is that what your comment is about the Australian government? Because, um, you know, the Australian government really refused to save a lot of people, um, when the Taliban took over, when, you know, you knew the Taliban was going to, you know, was marching across the country. Um, was about to take power and the Australian government really did nothing to um, protect people who were trying to leave. But also for Hazara who've left, who've become refugees, they face all sorts of situations from um, the Australian government's ban on taking refugees who are stuck in Indonesia in transit between Afghanistan and other countries and Australia, but then also people who are stuck in offshore detention um, that the Australian government wants to send to other countries uh, or people who are stuck on temporary visas of various kinds. Um, so, and, and what the Australian government's position is um, around the situation facing Hazara in Afghanistan. So I'd like to just see if you'd like to make some comments about the Australian government and its appalling treatment of refugees Especially, you know, there are people who, from Afghanistan, Hazara, who've got the threat of deportation over their heads with this temporary nature of the visas they're on. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, so thank you so much for raising this important question. I think uh, for our listeners, it's really important to grasp, uh, grasp the, the complexities and the volatility that currently happening in Afghanistan, but also to understand uh, the temporary nature of the status of Hazaras and um, other people who are living in Australia, but were from Afghanistan. And so one of our calls has been for the Australian government to uh, grant those people permanent protection, because as we know, Afghanistan is not safe for them, and so they won't be able to return anytime soon. So, yeah, so thanks, John. Well, Sorry, thanks. I've been out of breath. Thanks, Sidra, because I know you're rushing to catch a train now to work yeah. or somewhere. So, thanks yeah. very much for the interview. Um, that's um, we're really grateful for that, and we'd certainly like to keep in touch. I think a lot of listeners to 3CR would have really appreciated what you had to say. And also for um, the listeners, um, you know, people have to think about we've got refugees, Hazara refugees in Australia who are under threat of potential deportation or on these terrible short, uh, terrible short term or temporary visas, Chev visas, TPVs. But also these um, Hazara refugees have family in Afghanistan who are under massive threat. And one person contacted me the other week. He's got 20 family members under threat in Afghanistan. So it's a really tense situation. So thank you so much, Sidera, and we'll stay in touch.
Thanks, Dee. And just in terms of last comment, I'm sorry, I have to rush, but um, I'm forgetting a lot of the things that I, I want to say. But just to the audience, as everyone who's listening, please contact their local MPs. I mean, we live in a very privileged society like Australia. So we do have mechanisms in place to be able to ask our, our representatives who do have power in Parliament to ask them what they're doing uh, in terms of these atrocities that are happening in parts of Afghanistan against the Hazaras. I urge our listeners to call their local MPs and, and to urge them to, to do something about the situation of the Hazaras. I mean, the one impractical thing that we can do here is to recognise that the Hazaras are facing a genocide. I mean, the definition is very clear. The crimes that are being committed against the Hazaras is very, very clear. Well, thank you, for, thank you, Sitara, and um, we'll let you catch your train now, and um, we'll stay in touch. I'm sure we'll interview you in the future. Thanks. No worries. Thank you so much, Sue. Thank you. All right, and yes, that was Sitara Mohammadi, uh, spokesperson for the World Hazara Council. Um, and a former refugee from Afghanistan who spent 2019 as a provost scholar at the University of Oxford talking to us about the campaign here and elsewhere around the world to speak out against the um, the genocide that's being perpetrated against Hazara people by the Taliban and to generate the uh, political pressure to, to try and force the Taliban to back down and... Yes, it's, uh, it's very disturbing stuff, but it's it's excellent to see Hazara diaspora around the world getting really organised and building a strong um, solidarity movement. All right, um, you are listening to Green Life Radio on 3CR, and we're just going to play uh, a quick song. This is Not Angry Anymore by Thelma Plum. You can try to make amends Tell the world that we're still friends But was it worth it? Just the thought of someone else Who has you now to herself It made me nervous But did I earn? Did I deserve? Did I push you way too hard?
Listening to Green Left Radio, and you are on 3CR, keeping it rad across Melbourne. Great, <laughs> thanks. Um, well, I just wanted to make uh, a quick announcement before we go into the activist calendar, because um, people who listen to this program regularly would have heard us talk about um, the workers who have been locked out at Knauf, um, and that's a company which bought out Boral makes plasterboard, one of the two main plasterboard manufacturers in Australia. And the workers have been locked out for over three weeks now. Um, so um, people in Socialist Alliance and other other unions and other, other groups have been going down to the picket line quite regularly. Um, so there is a picket line. It's not a 24-hour picket line. It um, just goes from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., at 47 Turner Street, Port Melbourne, just around the Fisherman's Bend area. And the workers would really appreciate support on the picket line. Um, if you want to donate money, which is really needed at this point of the picket line after three weeks out in the grass, um, it, uh, it would definitely be worth um, going to check out the CFMEU um, Vic, Vic Taz website and Facebook page to get a link to the donation um, donation page um, and give a donation, big or small, uh, because they really need um, support to be able to um, uh, stay put until they win their demands. Um, the demands are both around pay and safety and, and, and against labour hire. And um, certainly one of the workers we met when we were there is an ex-hospitality worker. And he has, you know, being in hospitality, hadn't had much contact with unions, wasn't used to getting penalty rates because, you know, they were all being ripped off. And he's absolutely sold on unions and the need for collective action now. Um, But definitely rock on down to the uh, picket line and support the workers and keep their spirits up, but they're hanging strong. Uh, I was just down there at the end of um, last week, and or this earlier this week, and you know they're organising a lot on the picket line, including massive music jams as well as other things to try and um, keep everyone's spirits up. And they're pretty pretty much staunch, I'd say, um, but. You know, long picket lines can be difficult for workers, so definitely drop in. Thanks. 
Okay. It's bloody good to see. Um, so just go into the green left kind of activist calendar. Um, so the first event I just want to sort of highlight, um, and Angela Carr did um, invite this um, in her interview um, just before, but I just wanted to announce that there will be a Fund Communities Not Prisons and Police pre-election rally. Now, some of our listeners might have thought that the rally is actually going to be happening this Friday, but um, it's actually being rescheduled to Friday the 21st of October, same time and same place. Just This is just due to weather and flood warnings that um, might be potentially happening. And basically, the pre-election, um, this rally is basically calling for public and Aboriginal community-controlled housing, healthcare and community support in Australia. In Victoria, not more prisons and police. And of course, this rally and Homes Not Prisons is organised by people with lived experience of criminalisation, imprisonment, homelessness, and First Nation people, and will be uh, and will be the speakers at the rally. Some other events that are kind of happening is um, is on Friday. Wait a minute, I'm a bit confused. Sorry, I just need a. I'm not sure I went. Yep, okay. Mm -hmm. Friday, also happening on Friday the 21st of October is going to be a free CR fundraiser um, done by Law Shrivenite, which will be happening at Collingwood Town Hall 140 Huddle Street in Abbotsford. On Saturday, November the 5th, um, there'll be a rally, No One Left Behind, permanent visas for all refugees, and they'll be happening on Saturday, November the 5th, 2pm at the State Library. And some other events, um, just looking at some other events that might, I think that's actually, um, potentially the it, Iran, actually. Iran protest, Iranian protest. Oh, yes, the Iranian protest. So, um, there's going to be a protest in solidarity with Iran at 12pm at the Federation Square this Saturday. Um, so, yeah, that should be all. I think that's pretty much all the kind of events that are um, going to be happening. Um, so... Yeah, I, I just want to make an extra plug for the refugee rally on the 5th of November because there's a whole lot of refugees, including the Medivac refugees, who've received letters saying that they've got to sign up to go to the United States, go to Canada or go to New Zealand. Um, and they're all on bridging visas, which are due to be, uh, will run out in December. And this is... a absolute disaster in terms of the Australian government. Now, the Australian government saying, the immigration minister, that the letters were accidentally sent out. They weren't meant to be sent out. Now, do we believe them? Do we not believe them uh, on that? I don't know. You know, we had all that. Yeah, just like the robo-debt was accidentally, didn't calculate things quite correctly. Oops. That's right. Bullshit. And, you know, I mean, the thing is, these are refugees who need absolute certainty and and also there's a, a threat of deportation back to their home countries hmm. hanging over their heads as well. Um, now, one of the refugees, Fahad Bandesh, is uh, planning to resist, and no doubt there'll be others. There will be an information session for refugees who've received these letters or think they might be about to receive these letters. Um, it seems to be a broader group of people who've received the letters than just Medivac refugees. It includes people in, who've been in community detention for six years. So um, if uh, if you are if you are someone listening who's received one of these letters, it would be probably best to contact Refugee Action Collective or Refugee Advocacy Network 
to find out the details of this information session so that you're not making a decision in total isolation. Um, the meeting, the information session isn't designed to push people to make a decision one way or the other, but there certainly will be some refugees who are planning to resist and we'll need to rally around them. So that's why um, this rally that Refugee Action Collective and others are organising on the 5th of November is extra important. Yeah, it's notable that the Australian government is trying to, you know, the Labor government is trying to distance itself and say, oh, this was an accident. I think that shows that there is some sensitivity there, that they will be exposed as the heartless scum that they are for Mm. basically continuing the former Liberal government's policy and, and operating this, yeah, bipartisan system of cruelty towards not just people who are in camps, but also people who are now out in the community mm. who can't get that stability in their life and that residency that they need to be able to settle down. It's just, it's just the icing on the cake of people mm. who've been tortured in our, mm. um, concentration camps who have finally got out and are in the community and then they can't stay and they've got to uproot and start their life again in the USA or Canada or somewhere else because of this just disgustingly cold-hearted policy of the Australian government. Mm, No, definitely. All right. Well, we'll get into the next kind of part of the program. Um, we'll get to play a pre-recorded talk by Sue Ball. Um, Sue Ball is a member of Social Alliance, and she spoke. Um, she did the opening talk for this um, for one of the sessions for the Eco Social and 2022 System Change, Not Climate Change um, seminar that took place on last Saturday. Um, on the 8th of October, and her talk is from the session Capitalism in Crisis, Building Movements for Change. Thanks, Jacob. Um, <clears throat> yes, well, what I wanted to look at was really um, the situation we find ourselves in today and and the challenge that faces us, as Jacob outlined. But um, I don't think we've ever faced a period in human history where we are so clearly at a crossroads and where the polarisation between people is so great. On the one hand, the planet faces human-induced destruction of frightening proportions, while the inequities within our societies grow at alarming rates. This has been the topic of our discussion throughout today, and I probably don't need to produce any more statistics on the issue, but suffice to say, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change claimed in its April report this year that unless there are immediate and deep emissions reductions across all sectors, limiting warming, 1.5 degrees Celsius is beyond reach. In other words, if we don't seriously reduce greenhouse gas emissions now, the worst impacts of climate change will not be avoided. And on inequity, the World Inequality Report 22, of which economist Thomas Piketty is one of the coordinators, has this to say. The richest 10% of the global population currently takes 52% of global income whereas the poorest half of the population earns 8.5% of it. And that, the gap between the average incomes of the top 10% and the bottom 50% of individuals within countries has almost doubled during the last 20 years. So try and get your head around that. It's the last 20 years that's the worst. 
So, um, in fact, he says, they say in that, that in actual fact, we've returned to that period of a um, hundred odd years ago when Western imperialism was really sort of, you know, bursting at the seams. We've returned to that period in terms of the inequities. Meanwhile, reactions within individual countries to these growing crises show people choosing between right and left leaderships or seesawing precariously between them. You only have to look at how desperation and fear have played a role in recent elections throughout the world. In the last month alone, a right-wing bloc appears likely to win power in Sweden. While Georgia Maloney's far-right Brothers of Italy is forming the country's most right-wing government since World War II. And, of course, in Britain, a conservative Liz Truss has become the new Prime Minister, causing uproar over tax cuts for the rich while putting a climate change sceptic in charge of the environment and threatening to cut welfare. In Latin America, a progressive new constitution that was a key demand of the Chilean uprising of 2019 has been rejected by 62% of Chileans and the Brazilians have only marginally voted against one of the most vicious anti-working class, anti-environment governments in the world, meaning that Bolsonaro gets to try again in a second runoff later this month. But the idea of humanity being at the crossroads is also strengthened by Putin's threats to use nuclear weapons in the war against Ukraine, a war which is having dire economic impacts globally. Plus, we still have unresolved health and economic issues from the COVID-19 pandemic. And let's not even mention the aggressive role that the United States continues to play in its quest to remain the world's number one imperialist. Of course, most immediately pressing on the economic scale, another recession is looming. The third major global economic downturn in 14 years. And cost of living pressures are making life even more harrowing, especially for the poorest in our community. Taken together, it could hardly look more perilous for working class people and the biosphere generally. What this situation really shows is that capitalism is incapable of addressing these crises and providing a stable future for the planet and the mass of humanity. It's incapable because the dynamic of capitalism is to grow and compete. Companies cannot survive if they don't make more profits and dominate their competition. It's not really just about greed. It's about survival. If you don't become bigger than your your competitors, then you go under. Nation states protect and reflect this ethos. That's why the rights of the corporate sector are always put ahead of the rights of the working class. It's as simple, ruthless and anarchic as that. Our lives and the planet don't matter if the capitalists can't make a profit. And for our politicians, this is their bread and butter. It's the reason why Albanese and, of course, trusts can't easily back away from tax cuts for the rich because they are one method of subsidising the rich, balancing out the system, as they say, or the now discredited trickle-down theory, especially leading into a recession. But the nature of capitalism also means it's very susceptible to pressure, and here we can talk about pressure from both sides. 
So if we look once again at the laughable situation that Liz Truss and her Chancellor of the Exchequer, Reed Treasurer in Australian terms, Kwasi Kwarteng, found themselves in, the market immediately reacted to the projected tax cuts and went into a nosedive. Meanwhile, rallies of workers and the poor happened all over Britain. Oops, they must have thought. So they got rid of the cuts, cuts for the very rich and began to talk about not cutting welfare too hard, but probably still cutting. Now, partially this situation comes about because the ruling class is often divided. So one section of capital, usually the smaller producers, want tax cuts, while another section, usually big business, which rarely even pays tax, knows more drastic subsidisation will be needed with a recession looming. We saw it during the great financial crisis of 2008. Suddenly the US could find trillions of dollars, and if you remember, it was trillions, not just billions, from the public purse to bail out the floundering banks. Yet they couldn't afford to alleviate poverty or provide homes for the homeless. But let's come back to this concept of class unity. The working class also finds it hard to exert pressure if there is no unity, because the ruling class is adept at pitting us against each other for their own benefit. Think of the media's role in opposing strikes and vilifying unions, or the role it played against Jeremy Corbyn, or most recently, their role in building the campaign against the Constitution in Chile, which I'm going to talk about a bit in a minute. So given all of this, is there any hope of building a climate of change? Well, we wouldn't be here if there wasn't. Uh, So we have to console ourselves at least with that. But the reality is the Brits are out on the streets with the Enough is Enough campaign, and they've even been supporting the likes of Mick Lynch. He's the militant, plain-speaking transport union leader who led a great train strike in Britain recently. And this was despite the fact that workers have been led to believe that the unions all died under Thatcher. Also, there are the women of Iran, whose movement is spreading internationally. And the IPCC says that there is some evidence of increased action for climate. And, of course, all is not lost in Brazil. Clearly, where people mobilise, we can have an impact. For example... When you look at the IPCC report, it says zero emissions targets were adopted in at least 826 cities and 103 regions. And costs for renewables have sometimes fallen well below those for fossil fuels. These improvements came about because people mobilised. Governments were pressured to do something and business thought they could make a profit. Think of the pressure on the ALP government here after the last election, where climate was considered as the defining issue. The Green vote had never been higher and Teal candidates thrashed more moderate Liberal Party ones. Clearly, whether the Labor government wanted it or not, they had a mandate for radical progressive change to save the climate. Well, of course, we all know that that is not what they really wanted and why the incoming Resources Minister, Madeleine King, confirmed that Labor would support WA's $16.5 billion offshore Scarborough gas project and not back a ban on fossil fuel projects. 
Labor has announced now that oil and gas exploration will be allowed at 10 new Australian ocean sites. There are to be two new offshore gas storage areas in WA and Northern Territory uh, to explore the potential of captioned carbon and storage technology while fracking at Beetaloo and Narrabri will continue. However, if huge movements developed against these decisions, it's highly likely the Labor government would back down. Well, to some extent anyway. But to achieve this, we would require an alliance of all groups and individuals concerned. The alliance would have to remain independent of any single political party. Otherwise, it only reflects the views of one sector and become, can, can become a tool of that party. Such an alliance would need to be open so that it continues to recruit new layers as they become radicalised. It, it would have to operate democratically and elect a united leadership. And it would have to achieve political clarity, especially about public ownership of energy, or else it's open to exploitation and division from green capitalists. The reality is that capitalism does what it likes until such forces come into play. Look at the whole question regarding the cost of gas. We've been led to believe that there is a gas shortage, so prices have gone up. Yet, there is no gas shortage. It's all being sold at top dollar overseas. Australia is one of the biggest gas exporters in the world, but a cartel of four companies, and Sarah mentioned these this morning, but I'll repeat them again. It's BHP Exxon, Shell, Santos and Origin are making multi-billion dollar profits out of its export, especially now with the Ukrainian war, at the expense of the local market. Meanwhile, the Australian government is trying to negotiate a greater share for the domestic market for next winter. But the companies will not negotiate on the price because they want to continue gaining the super profits offered by the overseas markets. And remember, this gas was once collectively owned by the Australian people but was sold off to big business under privatisation deals. Prices wouldn't go up if the government threatened to nationalise these companies, if they won't give a reasonable share of gas at a reasonable price to the domestic market. So why hasn't this happened? Well, number one, we haven't built a huge effective movement here. And secondly, when we do, there will be a massive right-wing push against us because movements on that scale can begin to develop an anti-capitalist dynamic especially if people like ourselves are in it. But every time the working class has a significant win, and people were mentioning this earlier today, the ruling class goes all out to overturn it because even small gains can damage the fabric of capitalism. So this makes it harder for us to build dynamic, far-reaching movements. You only have to look at what is happening in Chile today. A huge movement and uprisings developed in 2019 and eventually forced out the president, who was a businessman. And he was replaced by a well-known left-wing ex-student leader, whose name is Gabriel Boric in 2021. This was after nearly 80% of the voters supported the idea of a new progressive constitution in an October referendum in 2020. So keep that in mind, 80% in 2020. But it lost the other day by 62%. 
According to Anna Zarita, a Green Left correspondent, the draft would have replaced Chile's current constitution, introduced in 1980 during the United States-backed military dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. And younger people here mightn't know much about Pinochet, but it was a vicious and horrific regime. And it favours neoliberalism and denies constitutional rights to Indigenous people and women. Less than two years later, about 62% of Chileans chose to reject the new constitution in a plebiscite held in September 4 of this year. Why? Zarita goes on to show that since the October 2020 plebiscite, right-wing ruling class groups worked to undermine the approval vote. These groups consisted of big business, evangelical churches and the economic elite, who have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. They spent Australian dollars... $2.3 $2.3 million on the rejection campaign, while the approval campaign spent only Australian dollars 121000 The right used a digital war of disinformation, bots on social media, racism, sexism, and scare campaigns to intimidate sections of the Chilean community, like the farmers, while they also vilified Indigenous leaders. Conservative mainstream media also helped fuel the spread of disinformation and distortions as more than 80% of the media is owned by conservative corporations. Meanwhile, the Boric, and remember Boric is this ex-student left leader, led government was contradictory, hesitant and accused of being timid. The large rejection vote may have been to punish the Boric government's mismanagement of the economy and heavy-handed tactics used against Indigenous peoples in the South. Inflation in Chile is 14%. Also, the Boric government did little public consultation and there wasn't a serious attempt to put the case for the progressive constitutional changes. Zarita compared this to what the Cubans did for a recent referendum to pass a new family law allowing same-sex marriage by 66.9%. Now, remember this. Cuba, despite all of its, you know, it, Cuba's a, an amazing place, but it's still very, um, got a lot real problem with machismo. And there's been a real problem with machismo all along. So keep in mind, they knew that that was going to be a bit of a difficulty. Anyway, Zarita says that what Cuba did was this. They used extensive public consultation with more than 79,000 town hall style neighborhood meetings and debate in various forums. The Family Code was revised several times to reflect more than 150,000 submissions made during public consultation. So they kept amending it as ideas came in from the people. By comparison in Chile, many people became alienated through the constitutional process, leading to a decline in support for the new constitution. The type of on-the-ground engagement used in Cuba could have helped dispel the distortions and disinformation that ultimately shifted public opinion. Interestingly, the Chileans still demonstrated in their thousands in support of the Constitution, and the International Workers' Movement of Chile put out a statement after the referendum went down, and they said, From the point of view of the working class and the people, we must return to the grassroots, strengthen popular movements, youth groups and housing organisations, recover the unions from the bureaucracy and thus fight for better living conditions, which I'd say is pretty much the same recipe for working class movements everywhere throughout the world. 
There are, though, actually a number of lessons for all of us from the Chilean struggle. I'm going to finish on these. Firstly, the movement cannot have illusions that their representatives in Parliament will fix things. The Boric government, despite their excellent left-wing credentials, crumbled once they got into Parliament. Partly this was from the impact of the right, and we saw this happen to Jeremy Corbyn, if you remember, in Britain. And partly it was due to their own compromises with the system. And this is just one example. But when the Boric government declared a state of emergency, deployed the military and arrested the Mapuche, and they're the um, indigenous people of Chile, arrested Mapuche leaders for their mobilisations against logging interests, this was a red flag that they were preferencing capital over the people. And there's dozens of other examples. We see union bureaucracies in this country, for instance, do the same when they kowtow to the Labor here, Labor Party here almost every day. Secondly, change can only come about if the movement continues to mobilise outside of Parliament. For instance, Socialist Alliance runs in federal, state and local elections. But we know that the individuals who are elected can only affect changes if there are mass campaigns outside Parliament. And Sue's going to talk about this in a minute when she gets up. These movements have to have grassroots or local involvement and develop the confidence and experience of activists. Another classic example of this is what the Venezuelans have been able to achieve in terms of housing. Um, it's a little known fact that in a 10-year period, they built 3 million homes and they believe they're on track to build 5 million by 2025. So just get your head around that. The targets and funding came through Parliament, but the Venezuelan people mobilised through community councils with local input and supervision. Jobs were created, and you'll be very surprised about this, crime fell in the new neighbourhoods because they had jobs and they had somewhere to live. Compare this with the paltry offerings of 30,000 social housing, not public housing, and affordable homes over five years being put forward by the Albanese government in one of the richest countries in the world. Thirdly, the fight for reforms is critical. Whether it's the Chilean constitution, the fight for more public housing or the rights of women in Iran or against climate change, but our aim has to be to develop an anti-capitalist dynamic. The reality is that capitalism has to be smashed if we are to achieve long-lasting effective change. We know that climate change and inequity in our, inequality in our communities is caused by capitalism. What we need to do now is learn from the struggles of others and from our own work and build a mighty movement. In Sue Bolton's talk in a, in a minute, she'll look more closely at our direct experiences here and what these show and how we can develop our work. So thanks. All right. And you've just been listening to Sue Bull speaking at the Eco-Socialism 2022 conference that happened last weekend. And Sue was talking about... Uh, I guess the nexus between climate action and winning bold reforms and the importance of uh, powerful social movements and, and getting organised if you're, if you're going to do that and take on the power of capitalism. Um, all right, we've got a brief moment and I guess I'd just like to finish up this week by encouraging people to subscribe to Green Left. Um, 
you can subscribe for as little as $5 a month or for you can quite feasibly contribute more than that if you choose. Uh, Green Left does have a small um, paid staff who put together our content um, online. We've got uh, activist reporters across the land and uh, this stuff is not... Um, Free, we, we run on a smell of an oily rag, so if you are able to become a subscriber, you'll be supporting uh, activist media and I guess a sister activist media organisation to 3CR that you're currently tuned into. So, yeah, if you're able to subscribe, uh, go to greenleft.org.au, uh, follow the links, and you can subscribe there. You'll get Green Left, uh, you'll get a curated selection of articles in your inbox each week so you can stay up to date with the latest and uh, yeah you'll be you'll be helping to keep radical left-wing media um kicking along and and reporting the sort of coverage that the that the mainstream media don't Mm, no that's really um really worthwhile and um you know, def- I mean, we've got an archive of Green Left um, on our on our website, and um, so it's definitely worthwhile. You know, for alternative news and analysis, and um, Green Left. So Green Left is what's behind this radio program, which has been going for a number of years now, and um, the Green Green Left project itself began. Uh, actually during the first Gulf War in 1991 when the US invaded Iraq and um, it's always been consistently a, an anti-war paper as well as, you know, uh, it's a left-wing paper. Um, it covers socialist content as well as all of the struggles of the day, um, whether it's environmental or workers' rights or whatever. So, yes, thanks for your support. Yes. And with that, uh, we'll be off for another week. So stick around, and we'll catch you again next Friday. And what's the program next? Uh, the program next, oh, I, that is okay. a very good question. I believe it is uh, Earth Matters. So, yes, stick around for Earth Matters. And uh, Left After Breakfast coming up later on. And, yeah, it's going to be a good day of uh, Lefty Radio. All right, bye for now. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people... 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au.